This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. In Matthew 28, our Lord gave to His visible church the Great Commission to go and announce the gospel, to make disciples of all the nations, to plant churches, and to make use of the means that He Himself had established. Dr. Lloyd Kim is graduate of Westminster Seminary, California. He earned his Ph.D. in New Testament and is coordinator of Mission to the World, the global missions agency of the Presbyterian Church in America. He has been himself a missionary and an associate pastor and has regularly taught courses for us here at Westminster Seminary, California. And he's on campus this week to deliver the first ever annual Dennis and Jane Johnson Lectures on Missions. He's giving two talks as part of this series. And as we talk today, he's already given the first, Sola Scriptura and Missions in Southeast Asia. The second lecture is Popes, Councils, and Church Leadership in Southeast Asia. And we'll explore both of these talks. Both of them are online at wscal.edu. These topics are worthy of your time and your attention. And as I say, we're going to explore both of those today. You can learn more about Lloyd and his work from our 2010 Office Hours interview with with him, it's online at wscal.edu slash office hours. Hi, Lloyd, and welcome back to Office Hours. Hi, thank you for having me. Well, it's been a while since we talked, and uh, it might be a good idea for you to get us caught up and to get the listeners caught up. What's happening at MTW and uh, what is happening with you? And before you answer that question, I wanted to say we are so proud of you. It's always exciting to have you here, and uh, you know I remember when you were a student, and then you were teaching here, and, and now you're a big shot. I know you don't think of yourself that Not way, and all. probably you shouldn't, but from where ordinary people sit, you might look like a big shot, and you're doing really important things, so we're very excited to see you you know, in charge and leading the MTW and leading them to doing really important mm. work. Well, it's an honor to serve in this way. So what's happening at MTW? I'm sure people ask you that kind of question all the time, and you're in charge of a large organization. That's kind of an open-ended question. But if there were a couple of things that you wanted to highlight as to what's happening and some of the exciting things that are taking place at, at MTW. Sure. So one of the things that we've been really wrestling and struggling with is asking the question, how do we come alongside the church to help mobilize a new generation of missionaries? What we've found is this trend that is happening, I think, across a lot of other mission agencies in North America in particular. And that's a large segment of our mission forces retiring. Mm -hmm. These are the boomers, generally speaking, who've served faithfully 30, 40 years, have done incredible work all over, but they are coming back home. At the same time, we're not seeing the same number of folks hearing the call, answering the call to go and serve overseas. And so that's been a huge challenge for us in asking as a, a North American denominational mission, what role is God calling us to play in helping to mobilize this generation to reach this generation globally? And so the way that we've been thinking about it is really starting with prayer and praying really how our Lord has called us to pray, Matthew 9, uh, 5 to 38, particularly the section where Jesus says, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest field. And so that's been sort of where we've begun in our effort to mobilize this generation is really on our knees and recognizing this is a spiritual work. This isn't a fancy schmancy strategy that we can <laughs> kind of make up or make happen, but God himself has to do this work in calling his people to that. It's that fancy schmancy 
Mansi. Uh, that's uh, technical language that you learned in leadership school. <laughs> yes, yes, definitely. <laughs> so that's very interesting about the generational shift that you're describing. And I think we're all facing this. And it's not just the turning over of a calendar, but also a cultural shift that you're facing. Because when I started here way back in 1997, there was something of a generational shift happening then. Right around 98, 99, 2000, there was a generation of folks who were retiring. Mm -hmm. And uh, we didn't have the sense that there was a generational or a cultural shift mm -hmm. taking place the way that there is now, mm -hmm. 20, 21, 22 years later. This is a real cultural shift. Mm -hmm. And that the millennials and their successors look at the world in a different way than perhaps even you and I were raised to look at the world. Absolutely. They want to do something about this life, this world. Mm -hmm. So how do you persuade them of the importance of communicating the gospel over against, let's say, you know, building a hospital? Not that building a hospital is not important. It is important. But all the people who go into that hospital will die mm -hmm. and they will face a judge, mm -hmm. which then gets us back to the gospel. Mm-hmm. That's what we found as we've spoken with more and more folks in the millennial generation and beyond. And the first thing I'll say that we've heard from them is they don't like to be generalized and stereotyped. So everything yeah, exactly. that I say is with that caveat. <laughs> I hesitated even saying, as I was saying the word millennials, I could hear millennials saying to me, don't call me a millennial. So I get that. Yes. So treading very carefully and really celebrating the generation that follows us because there's so much beauty and good that I see in this. I'm really excited about this particular generation. However, listening to them in terms of missions, I think part of the confusion is just definitions. So you say mission and it conjures up all kinds of images related to perhaps digging a well for water or good things, building a hospital. You know, all these things kind of fit in this category of mission. And they're, you know, they're not bad things. But again, it's kind of coming back to scripture and saying, well, what was the mission that God had sent us to do? And, and we take that very simply from Matthew chapter 28, 18 to 20, the Great Commission, right? Go and make disciples among all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you, and behold, I am with you even to the end of the age. And so that's where we kind of start in our conversation with this generation in bringing them back to the word, back to scripture, but also recognizing that this making of disciples has so many facets, so many aspects. At Mission of the World, one of our first values that we articulate is the church. We love to see the church. We love the church because the church is the pride of Christ. The church is the center of God's plan for his kingdom. And so we begin with church and then we say, well, how do we make disciples that plant churches, that fill churches, that revitalize churches? And so this is really the center of our conversation with mission. And then to help them to say, but it doesn't mean that every missionary has to be an ordained minister of the gospel. So how does the person who has gifts in education and teaching fit? Well, all the disciples they're making were saying, how do we come together and see how these things fit in planting churches in revitalizing churches and growing the church and seeing the church thrive? And so it's an integrated, it's an integral 
picture of missions, not separating word and deed to say all we do is preach, but we don't lift a finger to help. Nor at the same time, do we see the street kid in the Philippines and say, be warm, be filled, God bless you and not help them, but really seeing the second great command so integrated into the work that we do, loving your neighbor as yourself. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. One of the things that we discussed at lunch just a little while ago is the fact that sometimes people are given the impression that mission is just another way of being a colonialist or imperialist and exporting a political culture or something like that, and really an exercise of some kind of power as opposed to mission. So how do you help people distinguish between the mission that Christ gave the church, which is a profoundly spiritual mission, from the way it is sometimes characterized in textbooks, for example? Yeah, that is a great question and a big challenge. The narrative that sort of has been out there among the secular community is just what you've said, a close tie of cultural imperialism and two missions. And part of it is first recognizing historically that missions has not been perfect across the board. And so we need to own as a missions community things that have happened in the past that just were not helpful for the name of Christ and his church and things that have done. But to say that that's not the whole picture. And that's actually just probably the exception than the rule of missionaries going to serve to bring the good news of Jesus Christ with all the humility and all the recognition of our own sins and our own brokenness uh, as we come to bear the good news as those who have tasted it and seen and experienced the great gospel that we proclaim and to show acts of charity and grace, not with imperialistic or a cultural dominant attitude, but one who has just been radically transformed by Jesus. And today, missions may look different from perhaps the picture that has been painted in the past of the Western hero who comes in and saves the day. We partner with local believers and we serve them. And this is a very beautiful picture of the kingdom of God and the body of Christ working together, bringing aspects of the truth and how we understand the gospel to a culture that perhaps may not see some things and then learning as well. So the picture that we have today of missions is very much coming in as servants, coming in with the truth and not being ashamed of the truth, seeing the power of the gospel bring about lives that are changed and transformed, recognizing that every culture and every context has blind spots, but also God-glorifying aspects. So you have to walk a kind of a fine line, in a sense, because everybody comes from a culture, and it's hard to be aware of one's own culture because we're in it. And there is a temptation now in our time, and I think you were hinting at this, of a kind of um, universalism or um, a view that says, Well, do we really have to call people specifically, explicitly to faith in Christ? Isn't that kind of imperialism? How do you navigate that? And there's one other thing I wanted to get before I forget, and that is the point that you made at lunch. The way that Elizabeth Elliot was looked at, you know, and her husband, as opposed to the way the young man was described, who I think was attempting to do missions, maybe not very uh, carefully, but uh, off an island off the coast of India, and where people really weren't supposed to go, and he went, and it didn't go well. And that young man was held up to a great deal of ridicule. Let's do that one first, and then we'll come back and talk about universalism. Yeah, I do think that we are experiencing or have experienced a very significant cultural shift in our understanding of missions and of Christianity in general. And so it seems to be most evident in really contrasting those two stories, what has happened in the past with the Eliots and the saints and the others who were martyred. And from what I understand, 
stand were celebrated, were touted as heroes. Oh, they were. Yeah, I could confirm that. And the early church was a missionary church. And the early medieval church was a missionary church. And that people really did, for whatever imperfections, and they, they were manifold, whatever errors and sins there were with them and in their endeavors, they were attempting to bring the good news to, for example, European pagans mm-hmm. who, had they not gone, would not have heard. That's right. So that gets us, I guess, to our second question, and that is the sort of subtle and sometimes not so subtle pressure to give in to universalism. Who really needs to explicitly believe in Jesus? Is that really necessary? Because isn't that sort of the bottom line of missions, that people need to actually hear the law and the gospel, and they need to consciously put their faith in Jesus? Absolutely. If we... It boggles my mind that that would not be a part of the mission that God has called us to do. Without that, we have no hope. We have no reason. What There's no point in what we're doing. It is the reason that we come as an act of loving our neighbors and sharing with them a truth that has eternal consequences. Say that again, because, again, in our culture, the idea of going and announcing a message almost sounds inherently imperialist. But you say that this is not imperialism. This is an act of love. Absolutely. So give me an analogy. If your house is on fire and I could say, well, you know, that's his experience, right? His house is on fire and that's okay for him. I'm not going to bother him. Or we could say, no, his house is on fire. We need to tell him that his house is on fire and we need to help him get out. Yeah, that's a great analogy. I think if we struggle with it, I think it really forces us to ask, do we really believe What we're saying, we believe. Here we are at Westminster Seminary, California. And when Westminster Seminary was first established, it was in part over a fight over the nature of mission. So people like Pearl Buck were undermining the very notion that there are people in the world who need to hear the gospel. And the very notion of mission was being redefined. So a hundred years after all of that, we're having the same conversation again. How amazing is that? It's not surprising. Why not? Why isn't it surprising? Well, I think that there is a clear understanding from Scripture that you have folks in the church who don't really believe. And we have an enemy, and we know we have an enemy. And how can he undermine the work of God in his church? Mm. Well, through false teaching. I never dreamed that there would ever be a crisis on the doctrine of justification among evangelicals, since that's what's defined our faith historically. All evangelicals have embraced, historically, the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Until now. R.C. Sproul for Westminster Seminary, California. This is the first time in history that I know of professing evangelicals have negotiated that doctrine by entering into unholy alliances with people who categorically rejected. But that's one of the things I love about Westminster Seminary. This is one of the few seminaries in this country that is acutely conscious of this crisis and is zealous to maintain the central importance and essential truth of justification by faith alone. People are always asking me where to go. My favorite seminary in the United States, in the whole United States, is Westminster. Westminster Seminary, California. WSCAL.edu. 888 480 8474 Westminster Seminary, California for Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. So this is a spiritual struggle too, not just an intellectual struggle, a social struggle, an educational struggle, it's all of that. 
But there is a spiritual component to this that we may not even be aware of the fact that or the degree to which we've been influenced by ideas that lead us away from seeing the vital importance of announcing to our neighbors, our friends, our co-workers, and to friends and neighbors who are far away from us, fundamental facts that God is righteous, human beings are made in his image, they're held accountable, they're sinful and sinners, and they need a savior. And the good news is there is a savior. And that all has to be explicitly announced. Absolutely. And it has to be announced well and truly, which is not as easy as it might seem. Yes. <laughs> so yes. And that gets us to the next thing. It's not as easy to do it across cultural lines, and uh, it's not easy to do it according to the way that we say it ought to be done. So the two key words in your talk this morning were mission and sola scriptura. Mm-hmm. You said something really interesting, many, many interesting things, listener. But one of the things that really caught my attention was, forgive me if I butchered this as I try to recount it, is that in Southeast Asia, I think you said, relationships are more important in determining authority than, for example, a book. So in that culture, it might not be obvious why a book should have so much authority. And yet, as Reformed Christians, one of our fundamental convictions is the unique final soul authority of Scripture. Mm -hmm. So how do Uh, Reformed missionaries serving with MTW in Southeast Asia communicate this notion that we take as just absolutely basic, that Mm -hmm. the book is the final rule to a culture that doesn't really look at the world that way. Yeah, so there are layers and layers involved in that question. And and I think the first thing is, is that we do hold scriptures as the ultimate final authority over faith and life, but it's primarily because of the author of scriptures. We believe these are God's words, God breathed, God inspired, and that connects much more, I believe, to folks who come from a much more relational culture than a rules-based, book-based, law-based culture where they recognize God as the one who has power over everything, and therefore I should listen to him because that is something so vitally important. But, you know, the problem that I think many of us have when we come into a context where the worldviews are so different is we just assume that they see things the way that we see things. And, and when we communicate, they hear things the way that we hear them. And I think there's a great danger of thinking that we can kind of whisk in, say our piece, have people raise their hands and sign up and, and say they're <laughs> believers and then whisk out and think yeah. everything's honky-dory. You know, they're just going to continue to grow. But without getting into that long-term relationship and spending time and sitting down and talking through and bringing clarity and having them see it in a life Missions is just as relevant today, even with all the technology, even with all the opportunities to use social media or whatever. They need people to sit down and to talk and to wrestle with these things for the long term. People who recognize that they come from one culture and paradigm and they're coming into another culture with a different paradigm and that they have to know where they're coming from and they have to know where they're going. And they have to, as you say, do really basic things like spend time with people. Think about just, listener, trying to communicate to your neighbor and then add a layer. Let's say your neighbor is a recent arrival to the United States and comes from a different language group and a different culture, different set of assumptions about the nature of things and the way things work. And now you're going to build a relationship with that person. You're not going to do that by sending them text messages. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You're going to have to go and sit down and have tea or whatever. And it's going to take time just to be with one another, to learn how we 
talk to one another. Right. And now add distance and time and all the other factors that are involved. That's hugely important. So you gave us three exhortations, I think, for fleshing out Sola Scriptura in missions. Can you run through those for us quickly? Yes. The first is understanding, first of all, if we believe Scripture is the ultimate authority over faith and life, and the principal message of Scripture is the gospel, shouldn't the gospel be applied to all the aspects of our life, including calling a person to faith and repentance, but also seeing how the gospel impacts marriage and family and life. And this is in contrast to a worldview that seeks to compartmentalize these different aspects. And it seems so very contradictory to challenge folks to see how the scriptures would affect every aspect of a person's life. The second encouragement was to remind people that as they encounter the Word of God, reading Scripture, thinking about Sola Scripture, there is an author behind it and that it is relational, meaning that even as we read Scripture, that we are coming into the presence of God and hearing Him speak to us in His Word, and that that should be an approach or an understanding of how we even think about the Word, that it is relational. And because we love God, because we are in relationship with God, we need to listen. We need to pay attention to what he has spoken to us in his word, which leads to the third point. And I was arguing that the biggest threat to Sola Scriptura in the Southeast Asian context, I don't believe is liberalism or neo-orthodoxy, but neglect. And having people simply see scriptures as, well, that's what pastors or clergy are to do, and and it doesn't really impact my life. But if we really believe in sola scriptura and as the authority ultimately over all of our life and faith, and we need to know what he says. We need to know what's in scripture. We need to be uh, disciplined and diligent in meditating and reading and studying the word of God. And so those were the three applications or exhortations that I shared today. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Pope's councils and church leadership in Southeast Asia. Obviously, as you and I are sitting here, right, that the listener is, is experiencing this. These talks are already happened. But as you and I are sitting here, I haven't heard this yet. So I don't know what you're going to say, but that you certainly have my attention. Pope's councils and church leadership in Southeast Asia. What hath popes and councils to do with MTW? Well, it has little less to do with mission to the world and maybe more. more. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> We're all reassured. Yes, very good. More to do with how leadership is understood and viewed typically. Now, again, these are generalizations in the Southeast Asian context. And I start and I will start really with not necessarily in the church, but in the general society. What is the profile of a typical Southeast Asian leader? And I would say generally they are authoritarian, unaccountable and pragmatic. Hmm. And you can just kind of go down the list of leaders in Southeast Asia, you know, in government and in other ways. And you say, yep, that's exactly who they are. And then really drawing a parallel to say, well, what was leadership looking like in the church in the time of the Reformation and seeing how solar scriptura was really changing the locus of authority and the implications culturally that that had made to say scripture can actually be, you know, a child with scripture in his hand is greater than even the Pope. And so how do we see the parallels with what happened in the Reformation? How does solar scripture speak to perhaps that culture of leadership that has crept into the church in Southeast Asia? And how does solar scripture guard against authoritarian and rule leadership against a lack of accountability and a pragmatism that is not based on principle and scripture. So in a nutshell, that's sort of what we're going to be talking about tomorrow. 
You got my attention. I will be here. I will be listening because I think all those topics are really important because if there's any place in the life of the church where we're tempted to be really pragmatic, it tends to be in church planting, which is domestic missions, and then what we used to call foreign missions or international missions. And, you know, you, you see this all the time, the way we talk about missions. We'll send this person, we'll do that, and in effect, the ends justify the means. I'm not uh, criticizing being pragmatic. If in a culture, you know, things happen at seven in the morning, well, you better adapt to that. But pragmatism means, well, we're not really going to pay attention to our principles as much as whatever we think will generate what outwardly looks like success. So how do you battle that? Because there is pressure on you. I know you must feel it. You know, well, we've donated X number of dollars and we want to see an ROI, a return on investment. And that can really push pragmatism. So how do you push back against that? Yeah, those are great questions, Scott. And this really is a tension that we have. And what we would do typically in our context in Mission of the World is really see some of those things that we plan and we strategize and we want to be accountable to the folks who've supported the work that we do. And we see that all under this larger category of stewardship. God has stewarded us these resources, stewarded us responsibility. And so we need, humanly speaking, to do all that we can, learning from different ways to do so. However, as you said, this is primarily a spiritual work. And you cannot tie directly a return on, I mean, it, it would seem ridiculous for us to be able to talk in those types of terms. I mean, we talk about Farmers don't always know how things are going to come out, right? I mean, you can plan and you can even, you, you can use satellites. I'm from farm country and farming has gotten high tech. You can use the right kind of equipment and genetically engineered seed and the whole nine yards. And still, right, you can have a drought or you can have a windstorm or any number of things and all your plans go or a tornado, Right. That's correct. You would have the best seed in the world. If a tornado comes through your field, there's not anything you can do about that. That's right. Maybe perhaps something somewhat related to this question is how do you put value on a person who has faithfully preached, faithfully reached out, faithfully discipled a people who have not responded and to say, well, we're not getting a return on our investment. We're not seeing. Is that person a failure? Exactly. And we would say, no. You know, Isaiah was called to preach to people who wouldn't listen to him. Yeah. And he was faithful to that call. He was faithful in proclaiming the kingdom. He was faithful. In, and so our categories are so different from perhaps those who might, you know, say, well, where are the converts? Where are the churches? I mean, this is a fundamentally a spiritual work. It doesn't mean we eschew stewardship and faithfulness in the resources that we have. Yet, we say that is just as valuable. Let me just say that, yes, the way that we value return on investment is different. Leave us with this. Why is it so important, just so there's absolutely no question about this, why is it so important to articulate the gospel to people everywhere in every language as faithfully and as rapidly as we can? Why is that so important? Number one, apart from faith in Jesus Christ, people are condemned to eternal damnation. Two, this is a command of our Lord. It's his plan. It's his means to bring about his kingdom, the advancement of the kingdom to the ends of the earth. And so when your king tells you to do something, then, you know, this is not a debate, right? We ought to do this. Third, compassion, love, all the affections that we have received. Why wouldn't we want to see that given to peoples who haven't heard, you know, and why should we go? For me, it's there's so many people who don't have access. They're born their whole life and die without even knowing a Christian. And 
to me, that's a tragedy of stewardship. How do we collectively as the church steward the teachers, the disciple makers? How do we steward that well in light of God's desire to see his name and his glory spread through all the earth? So those are some reasons that I feel like we need to be absolutely convinced and compelled to be involved in this great work. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.